Well, I want to begin by looking at a passage from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is an Old Testament book um, written about 800 years before Christ. And so um, this is 2,800 years ago. We're going to spring from this passage and then kind of look forward um, and ask some questions about um, the year ahead and just about our lives, very personal um, questions about our own lives. So kind of an introspective message um, um, this may flow with last week as well, as far as just taking account of things. But um, Isaiah chapter 43 is, is, a, is a chapter out of the Bible that God is, is using his prophet, this man named Isaiah, um, to speak to God's people who've been taken captive to a foreign land. So God's people were taken out of Israel, and they were really taken as you know, captive and deported to Babylon. And it, it, on a map, it looks to be about 500 miles east, and so they're, they're taken from their land, they're... Um, basically, um, in, in new custom, languages, all of these different things are happening and, and life is unfolding. And for many of them, they're asking questions about, are we ever going to get back there? Are we ever going to get back to how things were, how our lives were? What's this going to look like for our lives? And um, in this chapter, Isaiah, he's actually letting them know that God has a plan to return them back to their land, that that life is not over, that yes, we've been through some hard things, but God is faithful and, and he'll lead us back. And here's what he had to say, and I like to look at this together. So take a look. Isaiah 43:16 says, This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path to the mighty waters. Pause right there for a second. What, what he's referring to, this is a reference to the deliverance of the people of Israel. Like You're probably familiar with the whole Red Sea parting experience of of. Pharaoh and Egypt and the Israelites, um, the Israelites <clears throat> in their history, um, all the people of Israel knew the, knew the story of the parting of the Red Sea and God's deliverance of his people. And that happened, you know, God ro- raised up a man named Moses to deliver God's people out from under the hand of Pharaoh. And so this had happened hundreds of years before they had seen God in their history really come through and do some amazing things. He, he made a way for them through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, that's a reference to the exodus out of Egypt. Here's an image kind of depicting the Red Sea crossing. But this, this event, now this isn't like a, a you know, satellite imagery that was taken and that we somehow captured from a time warp from Spy Kids or anything like that. This is just an image. So take it how you want to take it. I'm not sure if they were in quite such a neat line like that. I mean, I imagine that if I was passing through, I'd be in a, in a neat line too. Like if Moses said, hey, stay on the line, I'm like, you got it, Moses. Somehow God cooperated with, with this whole thing, and we'll do what's needed. So maybe this is a pretty accurate image, after all. But he clears this pathway for his people. And so the, the story goes that God's people were in, in you know, captivity as slaves. Millions of Israelites enslaved in a foreign land, in Egypt, okay? And... God, through Moses, says, look, you're going to deliver my people out from under Pharaoh. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. I would have sang it for you. I did last service, but that's all you're getting for me right now. Let my people go. And he, Pharaoh says, no, we're not, you know, no, you're not going to go. And you know the story. He disagrees. And so Moses says, well, God's going to send these plagues. And so one by one, God sends these ten plagues. And slowly Pharaoh loosens his grip. He loosens it and then changes his mind. And then eventually he gets to the worst, the last. And, and Pharaoh says, go. You can go. And so a few million people leave 
this place that they had known for a season, and they're headed to this land that God had promised. And not long after they're leaving, and Moses is leading them, Pharaoh has a change of heart, decides to chase after them. Pharaoh sends his men, chariots, all these things. People come chasing after the Israelites, and the people of Israel come to the Red Sea. There's nowhere else to go. They're going to be overtaken. All of a sudden, Moses, you know the story, puts his rod, you know, or he puts his staff in the water, water parts in this miraculous way. God's people are able to be delivered. And this story was pretty much, you know, a spiritual reference point of God's unchanging character, his faithfulness for his people. This situation right here was, was a major marker for God's people. And so Isaiah is saying, look, this is what God says. The God who made a way through the sea, you know the one who, who made a path through the mighty waters? Verse 17, he, Isaiah, so skip ahead to Isaiah. Now the people of Israel are in Babylon, again in kind of captivity situation. He says, that God, the God who did that in the past, who drew out the chariots and the horses, meaning God held the waters long enough in place to allow for Pharaoh's armies to come after and actually be in the water as well, chasing after them. They're, you know, they're chasing on their tail, and it says, but the army and the reinforcements together, they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. The Egyptians, God at the very moment you know, that needed to happen in order to deliver his people, he shut the waters. He closed the waters upon those Egyptians, and they were drowned in the Red Sea, and Israel escaped. This story of deliverance for God's people was passed on from generation to generation to generation, the Exodus. And we've seen the movie, Prince of Egypt, you know, where, where you know, Disney made it and they kind of made their own thing about living your dream and all of that. But, but you know, you, you see the history of God's faithfulness to his people. And, you know, this, this event actually had, they've actually, archaeologists have actually found um, uh, chariot wheel parts um, in the Red Sea, in places in the Red Sea. And so, like, you know, history, archaeology lines up with what God has said happened in the Bible and what God did to deliver his people. So Isaiah reminds them about God's faithfulness. Remember what God has done, how he took care of us. But then the prophet Isaiah says this in verse 18. He says, forget the former things. He's talking about the Exodus, God's deliverance. He's forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. Meaning, don't just keep going over old history. Don't just keep living there because I'm not done working in your lives. That, that's not all that I have to offer. It's possible to dwell in an unhealthy way on the past, presuming that God is done with us, or that God's work is done, or that we've hit this spiritual peak already, and that from here on out, maybe it's downhill, or, or we'll be looking back at some of the high points. So Isaiah is saying, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past, verse 19, see, or behold, or be alert. I'm doing a new thing. He's telling his people, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. He's basically talking to them about their, their deliverance that is coming again. Isaiah is saying to them, hey, everybody, God is not just our deliverer. He is our deliverer. It's not just back there he delivered us, but he is delivering us. He will deliver us. He's doing a new thing. So, so forget the former things. See, we can get so trapped, just like they could, in looking back at these spiritual high points and be stuck there and not make any progress past those times where we really saw God come through. For me personally, I can be trapped in some of my own good old days as a Christian and as a follower of Christ. Like when I came to Christ, I look back at that point in my life, I can remember the events leading up to 
deciding to follow Christ. I was 18. I remember what led me to make the decision to follow Christ, at least from my perspective on things. And I remember just the attitude and the zeal and some of the excitement that I had when, when, when I invited Christ to be Lord of my life. And sometimes I think, man, I wish I could just go back to that place. I wish I could experience that fresh, you know, sense of newness to that relationship. Or maybe another kind of spiritual marker in my life is a small group experience I had in this one small group experience. And I remember this one leader was just a great leader and just the mix of people was just this neat dynamic. And and I grew and I was challenged and I think, man, that was it. That was like, you know, that was the peak. And I'm probably not going to ever experience that again, but I'm so glad I experienced well, it's easy to look at the former things and just keep pointing back to these high points. Or, or maybe for, for you it may have been like a season of discipleship or, or just personal growth where you were really intentional and really aggressive and just really focused on plowing forward and just, you know, I, I don't want to get too cheesy here, climbing mountains and all that. Okay, But just a season of life where, like we just celebrated a, a 40th birthday yesterday and they call that, don't they call that going over the hill, right? You know, you're kind of heading towards 40. And then from there, that's kind of like the peak, you think, you know. And so from there, it just appears like maybe downhill or something. And, I mean, I'm, I'm approaching 40, and so it's like I'm looking, oh, maybe it's, can it get any better than that? Or maybe that time personally when, when you help someone come to Christ. I know for me, there's some, there's some memories I have of helping some people come to know Christ. And I think, man, that was, that was great. I, you know, and, and just thinking... Probably never happen again. Or, and I don't know how you experience different points in your life where you've grown or seasons of growth, but it's very easy. If you've been on a, a mission trip, it's very easy to think of your mission trip as, man, I felt so close to God. And again, that could be your former thing, just like for them it was the exodus out of Egypt. And so Isaiah was like, look, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. The truth remains for us is God wants to work in our present, in our life, in new and in fresh ways, from year after year. When we make little changes, it may seem really small. But over the course of a decade of change, man, your life can look drastically different if you'll take growth seriously, if you'll respond to God and keep responding to Him and just recognizing that God wants to be in the present. You're living God, not just the God who did one thing back there, but the living God who walks with us into the future and who wants to do new things. So I've got some questions to kind of guide us as we begin this new year, and ask God to really do something new in us as individuals. So first, as it relates to your prayer life, what requests will you pray regularly for? I don't know what role role prayer plays in your life, but prayer is a very, very difficult area personally. As As I kind of evaluate my life and spiritual disciplines, this has got to be the area that I feel like I really stink in. It's the discipline I think I neglect the most, it's the discipline that I, that I really recognize is, is extremely powerful and effective, and yet for some reason, I, I somehow pass it off for things that I would you know, rather do in my spiritual life. And I don't know how you feel about that, but ask yourself a couple questions. One is, what's the longest you've ever prayed in one setting? This isn't a contest, and don't shout it out. But what's the longest you've ever prayed in one setting? Or what's the longest you've ever prayed for one thing? Was it, you know three days? Was it five days? Was it a week of praying? Was it every Monday for a month, every Monday for a year? How long have you prayed faithfully for for a personal request? My mentor, uh, Pastor Randy, sometimes when we sit around and we talk, um, you know, and I listen to his stories, he shared with me different things 
personal things about his life that he's been praying for for years. And I've heard his mentor talk about things that he's prayed for for years, and he's still praying for. And some of the things he's seen answers to, and some of the things he's yet to see the answer, but he's still praying. And, he, and prayer is this powerful discipline, and I think, man, it's got to be the, the tool, the weapon that I use probably the least. And why is that? The spiritual giants, if you study some of the, the spiritual giants of Christian history, and they relied heavily on prayer. George Mueller was a man from England. He lived, uh, let's see, what year is it? Where are we at? 2012? So 120 years ago, 115 years ago. I think he died right around 1890-something. But in the 1800s, he was living in, in England. He was, it's a really interesting story. He was, his father wanted to see that he would be cared for in his old age. And so he put his son into seminary so that his son would earn a good living, <laughs> which I find, you know, fascinating. But in the Church of England, which in the Church of England, it, it, it's just not what you'd assume. You know, you probably put your son into business. You probably help him start the trade. But he sends him to seminary because he, he thinks, well, he'll be a moral man and he'll be taken care of. Because in the Church of England, the Church of England really, you know, is kind of this big hierarchical organization. So... He decides, let's put his son in this, in this seminary. George Mueller goes there. He's studying to be a minister. At the mean, in the meantime, he's a playboy. He's a thief. <laughs> he's, he just can't keep his hands to himself in many ways, let's say. And he's just, and you know, he's entering the ministry. Well, he finds himself in jail one day, and his father's ticked off. And he bails his son out eventually, and... And he gets out of jail, and then he's just like, okay, I've got to make new friends. And so he, he, anyway, he meets this guy who he thinks, maybe this guy will rub off on me. And the guy also thought, maybe he'll rub off on me, because he was, his friend wanted to actually live the wild side. And anyway, they find this other friend, and this other friend takes him to this Bible study, and they go to this Bible study. And, and um, for the first time, George Mueller, he encountered Christ. And as he heard people share about their lives in Christ and as they unfolded the scripture and just uh, began to talk about it, um, George Mueller sensed, wow, they have something I don't have and I need. He yielded his life to Christ, began to grow. And then he lived a life of remarkable faith. This was a man that he just began to take God at his word. God's word says this, and I'm going to believe what it says, and I'm going to respond to what it says, and I'm going to expect God's going to be faithful to do what he says. So he would pray for things, very specific things. God, here's what you say. I'm going to pray that that would happen in my life or this week or this month. And he, he saw God answer specific things. You can read stories about George Mueller. Some people say that there's documented 50,000 answered prayers in George Mueller's life. It is not just like, hey, God, help me wake up in the morning prayers. You know, hey, that's one, two, three. It's, it's big prayers and specific things. And so eventually he got married. God gave him this vision for caring for orphans. And so he... Um, Here's a picture of an orphanage that, um, that he um, built. But he depended on God completely to provide the resources for this orphanage, to care for, in his lifetime, over 10,000 orphans. And, and just, but this, you know, the history of what has gone on after is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been cared for through this vision he had. One of the things that George Mueller decided not to do was ever ask any other person for anything financially. He would share with his wife, here's what I'm praying. And he'd ask God, God, here's what we need. And God provided over and over and over. And if you want to, you can see the 
Cliff Notes by Veggie Tales, the story of George Mueller. And you can see it'll probably be like a pickle or something like that. Is George Mueller, I think. But but you can watch the Cliff Notes of the story. But he, he would, you know, at different points in his life, he would tell his wife, hey, we're down to a few shillings. We have nothing left. We need to pray. And we'd pray. They'd pray. And there'd be a knock on the door. And someone would say, I was praying. And God said, come bring this to you. And here's what we need. And he, t- he did this over and over. He never once asked a person for anything financial. He just prayed. And he asked the Lord to provide. And God continued to provide over and over. It's an amazing story of God's faithfulness. Well, one of the things that he realized was he needs to learn how to develop his prayer life. Here's a quote from his early, about his early view on prayer. He said this, I prayed often and generally with sincerity. I can identify with this in the sense of sincere. I was not necessarily the often, but the sincereness of my prayers. God, I really, but if I had prayed more, he said earnestly, I would have made much more rapid progress in my faith. So he decided to develop this discipline. And often he would do this with others. He started asking people to pray with him. He started staying up late, praying with others. He'd get up early. He'd meet others for prayer. And I'd heard these stories even in college. And it motivated me at different points. But, you know, like for some reason, again, I'd say this is probably the discipline, prayer is probably the discipline I've neglected the most. He said this, Extensive prayer is often difficult, in his view, because of the weakness of the flesh, physical infirmities, and a full schedule. Do you agree with that? I do. No one should expect, this is powerful, no one should expect to see much good resulting from his labors if he does not spend time in prayer and meditation. So Mueller, he just relied on God to come through over and over, and he sought God often to provide for the work of his ministry. So what are you praying for that only God could do? Is there anything that, that you're praying for that you just can't do on your own, that you really need to see God come through? Or is there someone you're praying for that only God can change? Those are, those are prayer requests that George Mueller would pray and that people of faith through the centuries who've really labored and seen the fruit have, have, have prayed. They've prayed for things uh, regularly, earnestly, but things that only God could do. Here's an example from King David's life. When he, when he prayed this prayer, um, this is Psalm 27. When you read it, just look at it for a second. You read it and you think, that's a good prayer. One thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Like He wants to be with God. He wants to dwell with God. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. When you just read it, you think, man, that's good. I, can, I agree. That's a good prayer. Well, let me read you the, the context of the passage here. This is not up on your screen, but Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, David, this is a battle. This is a battle song, a battle prayer. He, he, he's, he's really in war. Listen to the next verse. When evil men advance against, advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then... Will I be confident? That's verse 3. And then he says, One thing I ask of the Lord. So in the midst of the battle, he's saying, One thing I ask of the Lord, when I'm in the heat of things, when I'm in the thick of things, when people are chasing after me, when I don't know what tomorrow holds, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. He's not talking about going to church and just sitting in church, because, or the temple and sitting in the temple, because the temple wasn't even built yet. So 
David's son Solomon would later build the temple. So he, he didn't have, he wasn't praying about, I just want to sit in the temple and just be there in God's presence. What he's saying is, I, I, I want to just remain in God's presence. I want to keep in my mind that you're always with me all the time. And that helps when you're in the thick of things. That helps when you're in battle to know that God is present with you. He's living, the living God who walks with us. So this request is really appropriate for David, who is really on the run many times in his life, feeling abandoned. So, again, what, what is it that, that you're praying for? Or maybe that you think you ought to be praying for? Beyond the basics, beyond things that you know are going to happen already, what are you asking God to do in your life this year? For me, as I've been kind of, even near the end of last year, just begun to consider the area of prayer and just thinking through some things, there's some specific things related to my family, to my extended family, to our church, and to, min- to a couple ministries that we're connected to, and to some people that I'm praying for in very specific ways. I hope that God would prompt in you a desire to pray regularly for some certain things. I'm using a tool. A friend of mine developed a tool called PrayBuzz, and I've been using this tool now to try to remind myself to pray for these specific things, and it sends me PrayMinders and I get pre-minders, just like you would get like a Facebook reminder or something like that or an or a alarm on your phone or something. But, but I'd encourage you to start praying specifically. Pray for things that, that, that aren't already going to happen. And then see God come through. And then when he does come through, give him the credit for it. Give him the glory for it. Rejoice in that. Here's another question to consider. In your spiritual life, what good thing is holding back growth. Not sin, but what good thing is holding back growth? This is really related to how we can get sidetracked and we can invest our lives in all sorts of things that are important things, but they're lesser important things, and we neglect the most important things. So there could be good things you're giving your time to that are not the best. And maybe the best thing is way down here on your priority list. And so that's the question here is, what, what good thing might be holding back growth in your life? Look at this man. The man came to Jesus. He expressed this desire to follow him. This is Mark ten seventeen. It says this, As Jesus is, he started on his way, a man ran up to him. He fell on his knees before him and he said, Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, what's it going to take for me to go to heaven? Jesus answered and he said, Why do you call me good? There's no one good except God. God alone. Now, he's not denying his deity. He's not denying that he is God. He's just veiling. He often did this. He would veil his his true identity to many, many people. Most of the time, he would veil his true identity. And then he says this. He starts walking through the commandments. And he says, you know the commandments. You know, you're a good Jewish man. You were a boy, you are a man, you are raised in this. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Does that sound familiar? It's... Ten Commandments stuff. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus, he starts citing these things. And we would all agree, these are good things. We should do these things, shouldn't we? Like, we should not do these things. These are all good things. He said, look, you're doing good things, right? Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. He was pretty proud of the fact. And he firmly believed that he'd somehow kept God's commandments pretty perfectly. Jesus looked at him, and he says he loved him. It's interesting. He looked at him and he loved him, meaning he looked beneath the rich man's self-righteousness, his religious devotion, and he saw his deepest need. And he got right to the core of the issue and he said this, One thing you lack, 
He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It's not that Jesus is saying, look, if you want to follow him, you need to be broke and always giving everything away. What he's saying is for this man, he put all sorts of good things ahead of the fact that he didn't have this unrivaled allegiance or devotion to serving and pleasing God. And he would put his self-righteous achievements and then a love for money up as, as the primary focus of his life. And because of that, it says in verse 22, at this, man, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He put this one thing ahead of falling Christ, his own wealth, his own success. And so that one thing that he lacked was an unrivaled allegiance to God. He put something else before him. Money's not a bad thing. It could be a good thing, but it's not the most important thing. And Jesus was saying, look, you lack this, and that's what he was missing. And, and men, and ladies as well, but primarily men, we can subtly or intentionally do this, can't we? Where we put our success and our career and our money as, as the primary focus of our lives. And we get driven and focused, and everything is about our resources. And money can be like an altar that we bow down to in our lives. And we don't necessarily bow down literally to it, but what we tend to do is in the way that we schedule our time, the way we budget our, our time, our resources, what we do is we communicate there's things more important than Him. And, and, and as dads, for those of you who are dads, you, know, you want what's best for your kids. And so it's, it's natural for, for, for us as dads to think, I want my kids to be successful, so I'm going to put them in good sports. I want them to excel. I want them to, or I'm going to put them in, in academic things. And I'm going to get them tutoring. I'm going to get them the right people and the right opportunities so they can be successful. But the problem is, without the right priorities themselves, without the right priorities themselves, all of that stuff will turn out to be empty pursuits for them if they miss the most important things of life. And so, I don't want my kids to end up having an encounter like this where they realize. Man, there's other things more important and then they walk away from following Christ. I want them to follow Christ as their primary focus. And so what is it, men, dads, what good things might you be putting up ahead of him? What good things might be holding back your growth? Few, few men have a determination to trust God in the present for their success. We always think that our success is our own doing and our own you know, it's, it's in our hands. And so if we don't work hard, then we got to... And so the truth of the matter is, it's in God's hands. And if our primary focus is not pursuing Him with our whole heart, if we don't seek first the kingdom of God, we miss, we miss all sorts of things in life. In fact, we may, if, if we don't ever yield our, our way to Him as Lord and say, you're first in my life, then we miss it all completely. It's, it's really, He wants all of us. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool and trust in yourself. Proverbs 28:26 says, and I've got to quote this right because I butchered this verse. He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. Don't trust in yourself to put life together and to think that your career is all what you got. I mean, trust in the living God to provide, to protect, to guide. That's his department. So men, pursue Christ. Ladies, moms, what, what, what might this be for you? What good things in your life might be holding back your growth? There's all sorts of good things you could give yourself to, like protecting your family. But then that can turn in an unhealthy way towards fear. And so what, 
maybe there's fear related to the health of your family. Maybe there's control and just trying to make sure that everything is just right. What, what is it? Maybe it's beauty. And again, those things aren't bad things. But they may be, you need to evaluate. What, what are the lesser priorities? I need to make sure my life is in order. Because the priorities, moms and dads, men and women, the priorities that you set daily, weekly, monthly, those are etched as examples in all sorts of people's lives that for your children are really hard to shake. And they can shake them with God's help, but it's very, very difficult. There's a lot of relearning that goes on for us adults from examples that were set to us as we were being raised. And so take this area seriously. Here's another question. This is related to sin, related to the past. This is on the back. What do you need to let go? What do you need to let go? This is really related to sin or the past. It could be something that you've never really dealt with. Maybe it's something secret that you've been carrying along, that you know displeases God, that you're doing, that you're involved in, that you know it's, it's, it's sin. God calls it sin. And that you're, you think you're hiding it, but it's burning. <laughs> and you, you recognize that it's not getting you very far. And it's creating all sorts of emptiness, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. That may be something God's trying to get your attention. The guilt, the shame. He wants it to lead us to repentance, to confession, to really turning a corner on certain things. Or it could be pride as it relates to the past. Whatever it is, what is it you need to let go? Look at what Paul said related to the past. He said this. Brothers, he said, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, meaning perfection. He's talking about spiritual perfection, how you can't attain that. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind straining towards what is ahead. He's, he uses this word straining toward it. I've shared about this before. It's the idea of stretching every muscle to its limit to move forward, to win the race. It's where you're throwing it all out there. You're going full steam ahead. He's saying, I'm forgetting what's behind. I'm not trying to go both directions. He says, I have, I'm forgetting what's in the past. And in verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus and we're not completely sure what Paul's referring to her when he says, you know, forgetting what he's behind is really not important, but he is, he's letting go of the past. Everything in the past, both the good stuff, the bad, the religious achievements, good deeds, sin, missed opportunities, disasters we've made, messes we've... The past does not control the present, but we have to let go of it if we're going to make progress into the future, don't we? We have to let go of it. And for most of us, when it comes to sin... The starting point is confession. Get it out. Just get it out. Confess it to the Lord. If you've sinned against someone else, confess it to the Lord and then go to your brother or sister and say, I've blown it. I need to ask you to forgive me. Here's what I did. It was wrong. not making any excuses about it. I'm not going to justify it that I did this because of that or this, but I, I did that and it was wrong and I'm sorry. And would you forgive me? And, and, and then repent of it. Repent means to turn around means don't, don't stay there. Don't remain there dabbling in it, but re- go the other direction. Repent. Renounce it. Meaning, continue to call that sin. Move away. Move in the other direction. You may have experienced a very, very deep hurt this past year, or maybe in, in the past recent years, and you're stuck in the past because of that. It may be a deep hurt that you caused. It may be a deep hurt that someone else caused. Maybe a friend. Maybe a family member. Maybe it was in your marriage. But there may be these deep, deep hurts that you're just stuck in the past and you're struggling to to forgive or to ask for forgiveness or to get it out and you're just stuck. And 
it's impossible to move forward in our growth. You can't move backwards and forwards at the same time. It's just impossible. And, and, and God doesn't want us to minimize past hurts. He wants us to process them and deal with them. But once you have, and once you've granted forgiveness or asked for forgiveness, keep taking the steps to move forward. And God can bring about the release and the deliverance that is needed, and maybe long needed in, in many cases. God is interested in what he can do in the future in our lives. Jesus said this, he said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, meaning he gets after the work of the kingdom, but then he looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom. Meaning to pursue things of the kingdom, to pursue the things that are on God's heart, it requires we keep pressing forward. We process the past, we respond to God on confession, things like that, but then we move ahead. One of the ways we do this is this final question is, ask yourself, what truth do I need to believe? And I've listed a handful of scriptural truths that I'd like to kind of leave you with. And I want you to take a look at some of these promises that we find from God. And and the reason why this is so important is because we live very, very emotional lives, don't we? I mean, our emotions go haywire and then we just get tossed back and forth. We're on this roller coaster of how we feel. And and so the reason we lock on to God's word is because his truth, it anchors us. And it keeps us from riding that roller coaster through the years. We lock onto the truth and then we believe the truth. That's how we press forward. We tell ourselves the truth when we need it. So here's a variety of areas that are connected to some different topics. One is physical needs. If you're just constantly like battling, God, how are we going to make it? Am I going to be okay? Are we going to make it? God makes a promise about that. Philippians 4.19. He makes this promise to people who have put their resources into God's kingdom and who continue to do that, who continue, continue to sacrifice. And God makes the promise, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not something you just wishfully do and you think, oh, God will meet all my needs according to, you know, so I'm just going to spend away and I'm going to do what I want to do. I mean, don't be a fool again and, and, and focus on lesser priority things. You keep God in first place in your life. He directs the way we steward our resources the the decisions we make but he 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 will meet the needs that we have this is spoken from a first century pioneer to a very very generous church temptation here's another topic another area that maybe is a truth you need to believe and really latch on to lock on to says this no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I know I have a lot of people who've memorized this verse. They're checking me on that. So I have a lot of guys that be like, yep, yep, yep. But, but see, we get tempted and tested, and we think, oh, I'm not going to make it. God, you ripped me off again. You put me in a corner. No, God doesn't do that. James actually talks about that. We get lured away by our own desires. It's not him. Us. There's all sorts of stuff that gets drug up in our lives. We find ourselves in very, very tempting situations. We put ourselves there. But even in temptation, God makes a promise. He's faithful to come through in the present. He won't let us be pushed off a cliff without providing a way of escape. It's up to us what to do. We can't do it on our own. We need to call out to Him in the moment and take that, take that exit route. Take that. Take the way out of the situation when he provides it. But be looking for it. But this is an important truth to to believe. Another one is forgiveness of sin. We get so used to bitterness, grudges, unforgiveness in our human relationships. We interact with each other and we think, well, why would God want to forgive me? Well, he makes this promise. 
He makes this statement. Micah 7 says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You see, God is different than us. He doesn't handle He doesn't handle our sin the way that we handle and wrestle with bitterness, grudges, unforgiveness. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. He says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is an amazing picture of forgiveness that we need to experience. And oftentimes, we have stuff from our past that we get stuck there because we think God's not going to really forgive me. And you need to tell yourself the truth. Another is trials. Rather than assuming that God is just against us again, if you're in Christ, here's what the promise is. Romans 8:28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. So be confident that God, you know, He's growing your character. He's not abandoning you. He's growing your character through trials. It's painful. God can work through them. Loneliness, abandonment, Deuteronomy 31. You'll see a verse there on that. Just we're reminded, don't be afraid. God says, I'm with you. At the end, He says, He'll never leave us nor forsake us. This is a promise that comes over and over in the Old Testament. Jesus refers to this. He makes the same statement in His own words in the New Testament. He promises to be with us. Or tired. Isaiah 40, verse 29 through 31. This was the favorite passage of my father. And I've seen him for years operate on less sleep than most Americans. And he, I think it's partly because this has been his life verse. He asks the Lord for strength, and he puts his hope in the Lord, takes hold of his promises. Isaiah says, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Meaning, like, he gives us a recharge. He keeps renewing our strength. Just when you think you can't go any further, just when you think you can't press on, just when you think you're out of steam, He can renew our strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the truth that you may need to anchor and lock on to. Decisions, John 10, 14. Just being reminded, God is the good shepherd. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. God promises to walk with us, to guide us through different things. This might be something you need to be reminded. Confusion is not in his language. He guides us very carefully with wisdom as we stay close to power and spiritual warfare. Maybe you feel like you're just being beaten down and beaten up. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Staying surrendered, confessing sin, dealing with sin, obeying God. Those things are a spiritual... That is what it means to submit yourselves to God. Meaning confess sin, obey God. Confess, obey. Just keep... As you do that... That provides a spiritual force that can break strongholds and resistance that we encounter. And we, we've seen this. I've seen this in my family. I've seen this in the lives of other people. We've seen this in our church. And, and God, he, he keeps this promise to provide power in spiritual warfare. Another thing is assurance of eternal life, Romans eight thirty-eight through 39. Some people are just constantly wondering, am I in? Am I out? Am I in the kingdom? Am I, am I, am I a follower of Christ? And you may have made a decision at some point to follow Christ, and then you're just like, I don't know if that's really true anymore. And maybe there's certain things that cause you to just doubt. Now, this is a promise, Romans 8:38. Paul says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present 
nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have yielded your life to Him and if He's extended His grace to you, things in the past, things you've done, things others have done, those things will not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's, he holds on to you. It's not the other way around. He holds on to you and your life and your security. You can have that assurance of eternal life. I want to invite the band to come up as we wrap up our service this morning. And would you take out this white card and, and take a look at these next steps? You'll see on the back, the first one is just blank. Because if God has spoken to you specifically about something, just a very specific focus for your new year, Maybe it's in one of these four areas, or maybe you just, from that very first passage about, hey, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Maybe God is showing you, here's what I want in 2013 for you. Here's what I want you to focus on. Here's the steps I want you to take. Here's the prayer you're going to need to pray. Here's the passage you're going to need to hold on to. Here's the thing you're going to need to let go of. Here's here's the thing you need to set aside. I mean, whatever it is, I, I really know that <clears throat> God is not, again, He's not done it with us. He's not done with our lives. You haven't hit the spiritual peak. Keep pressing into the future. Another one is talk it over with a trusted friend. I I would encourage you, maybe if there's certain things that God spoke to you about, just take your listening guide and just have coffee with someone. Sit and talk about, wow, you know what? Some things that God showed me that I, I'd like to share for a point of accountability. Or the last thing on there is surrender your life to Christ as Lord or boss. Maybe you identify with that rich young man who ran up to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know, you might say, you know, I've been a pretty good person. Just like that man said, I've been a good person. Jesus said, yeah, but not good enough. Because the truth of the matter is, none of us can be good enough to inherit eternal life on our own good merit, our own good works. Eternal life is a gift that's given to us from the hand of a gracious God who gave His Son to sacrifice His own life to pay the price for your and my rebellion. Eternal life is only given to those who receive God's grace and His precious gift of Jesus. And if you've never done that, if you've never yielded your life to Christ, in that way saying, Lord, I receive this gift of my forgiveness through the death of Jesus, and I yield my life to you as the leader from here on out. I've been running the show. I want to give you the the freedom to lead me here on out. You're the boss. Wherever you lead, I'll follow That's what it means to commit your life to Christ, to become a Christian. If you've never done that, I really can't think of a better time to do that than the beginning of a year. So I'd encourage you to to move forward on that decision. If you've been on the fence, I'd encourage you to move forward on that decision. Check that box or on the top right of the connection card on the back side. It says, begin relationship with Jesus for the first time. We'd love to share with you more about how to make that decision and to move forward in that. In a moment, we're going to be receiving our offering and And so as the ushers prepare for that, you can also get uh, ready if you'd like to give. Whenever we give to God, our attitude is really the most critical part of giving. You might not be giving this morning. You might give online. Some people at our church mail in giving. Um, But I want to encourage you, as you process and consider the area of giving, there's two examples in the very first few pages of Scripture of giving. And I read these recently, and I was reminded about our attitude in giving. The attitude of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons. Cain was the man who gave really from a begrudging heart. Abel gave his very first and best to God. And when Cain saw what his brother was giving, 
He was jealous. And he thought he gave his gift more out of a grudge and out of jealousy. And God wasn't pleased with his gift. He was pleased with Abel's gift. And it led Cain, his, his, his attitude of giving was really a reflection of a deeper, deeper problem that led to jealousy, murder. And so giving for us, it's kind of like a spiritual stethoscope into our, into our heart. God, through giving, he, he does this heart check constantly on our lives. And so as you give, you know, don't just go through the motions of giving like Cain did and, ah, just got to give because this person's giving. And honestly, you don't need to even give in here. Give out of a plan and give out of the right motive and attitude when you give. And so let, let's ask the Lord to bless the offering and just <clears throat> to help us continue in on our application. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again for the truth in it and the examples many, many ways where you have shown your faithfulness through centuries of dealing with people who have this common thread of rebellion, just like us. God, you're a gracious, merciful God. When we turn our hearts to you, you come into our lives and you bring all sorts of new things. You bring growth where we assume there's just dead life and and where we would expect you to be done with us. You bring growth. So, God, I pray that as we turn this corner on this new year and we head into 2013, Lord, I pray you would empower just godly visions for our lives, for our personal lives, for our families, for this church family. Lord, that you'd grant us um, wisdom to know what kinds of prayers to be praying this year. Lord, that we wouldn't be wrapped up in lesser important things, but that we'd keep focused, men and women, on the most important things of pursuing Christ with a whole undivided heart. We give you our heart. Lord, for those that have not yet yielded their lives to you, I pray that in your plan, God, as you've been calling them to yourself, that they would make the step of, of receiving you. We, as we give this offering to you, we just pray that you'd be pleased with our hearts. As we give, we know you see right into our lives. And so I pray that as, as we give back to you, Lord, that it would come from the right place. And Lord, we thank you for how you provided for this church. And Lord, we pray that you continue to do that to allow us to do the work that you've called us to here in this, in this area. So it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.